Five, four, three, two, one. All right, hello, welcome, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Army's Inquisition yet again. Episode 180 on Sunday, the 18th of April. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight's guest is an author, researcher, podcast host, and we're going to be peering beyond the historical veil with Jared Murphy. How are we doing, Jared? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm your non-Amish guest. Smart. <laughs> you can be Amish, Jared, if you like, just for tonight. Yep, that's in, in Minnesota, like I said, lots of Amish, buy lots of their furniture. Big fan. Uh, your podcast is called Not Aliens. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that, and I co-host Conflict Radio and do regular a couple shows, but yeah, Conflict Radio and Not Aliens. Now, is this concept of Not Aliens sort of... Um, an antidote to the recent uh, surge, if you like, in the popularity of ancient alien theories. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's 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 crazy that it's not. I shortened it strictly for the sake of the internet being difficult for people to remember and type things in. So instead of saying it's not aliens, worse, it's us, and then getting into the fact that yeah, there could be aliens, but not aliens is a lot easier to type. And then the details, though. I remember the first time I got into quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and the idea of the hundredth monkey theory that monkeys on Madagascar had learned how to use sticks as tools and anthills because there was a collective consciousness and the reason monkeys knew how to do it. And, and I remember learning all this when I was like 19, I was reading Schrodinger's cat and I hear about the hundredth monkey theory. And, and that was a more reasonable explanation to explain the miraculous rise of pyramids all over than there was actually a whole uh, forgotten human society that literally was connected on every continent. And so the easier jump was collective human consciousness, which, which is a real thing, but that was an easier jump and aliens is easier to accept than a worldwide advanced human culture. And that's the issue with not saying that it's, it's not that it's not possible that there could be aliens. It's just has nothing to do with the giant megalithic polygonal blocks that, and standing stones that are everywhere from what's left of above water dogger land to, I don't know, Australia. Yeah. These, uh, tell us about this, this polyglot, uh, polygonal sort of, um, what do you call it? Like geopolymer construction that you find in South America, because this is, isn't something we've talked about before. That's super cool. The um, so the father of geopolymers who invented like if you if you have a concrete driveway, you have some sort of geopolymer in your life, and it's a matter of taking basic concrete mix, uh, but adding different fibers and elements and assorted things to it. And Dr. Joseph David Ovitz, uh, who's won every award France can give him for inventing it, plus we all use geopolymers, had a theory that maybe the Great Pyramid. You know, again, we also. One, we can't get our head around how Tiwanaku and South America and these casted like H blocks at Pumapunku and Tiwanaku that end up on all those shows where they're like, okay, well, these H blocks, they had to have been cast. Uh, well, they did testing and it appears that some of them are geopolymers, that they were cast, that they were formed in the blocks. But then we've also found it in the Mediterranean 
they found Teflon-like concrete that is ancient. It's not a secret military base. It's not an abandoned World War II thing. They find geopolymers everywhere, including the Great Pyramid, where the issue was, well, how did they build this giant thing? And that, Well, they must have poured it. The issue is if you've had a building that's been around for tens of thousands of years and a timeline that exceeds our understanding, well, we repair buildings. We, we put on new roofs every, what, 20, 30 years, 40 years. Some places they think they can wait until the house falls down. And we don't account for dynamic. Dynastic people adapted sites that were abandoned that were much more advanced polygonal blocks. So one is the material sciences. One is what is it? Is it a geopolymer? Is it they mixed a bunch of stuff together and silicas and sands and maybe some other nanotechnologies and they formed a block? Uh, what about the polygonal blocks that are made uh, like at Tiwanaku? You're talking 12,600 feet above sea level, but yet they're bringing stuff from 75 miles away through hills and valleys and then putting it together so you can't put a piece of paper. Oh, and the exact shapes that are 100 a ton, you know, 300 ton, 50 ton blocks. Well, they work with earthquakes and frequencies. And the very thing that blew my mind with this material science and these technologies is that it's terra preta, this engineered soil that is all over the earth. It's in Northern Africa, it's in South America, it's in Central America, it's in Australia. Just this particular flavor of terraprate, which is a biochar soil, which has to be created by man. It's not a matter of a bunch of earthquakes or a bunch of fire, forest fires and a bunch of animals died and composted and they made really rich growing soil. That's not what this is. This is an, an engineered, a man-made soil. And it seems to connect with the buildings, the polygonal repairs and or blocks and formations to not only just cancel earthquakes, but there are papers even now being published by Stanford and a million other places that, well, not a million, but a lot, where it's showing that these giant stone spheres that are found all over the earth are 100% related to uh, cymatic frequency energy control. So now you have a giant network from the soil to the foundations of these buildings that I have a background in historical remodeling, which for you guys, you'll find funny because everything in America is really young. So, <laughs> yeah. Like I, any one of you could be sitting between the, between all of you, you could be sitting in like a thousand years of history. Yeah. And in America, an old house is built in the 18, like even if it's 1900, you know, I've, I've gone to remodel homes where it's 1960 and they're like, our house is really old. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I just came out of an 1869. And what's 1869, right? But Here's, um, you know, we build a foundation and you only dig down and where we are, it's a cold weather climate. We have cellars. And so you have to dig past the frost line and you're supposed to pre-compact the soil to 90%. A lot of builders don't do that. And then homes in a hundred years, you know, they get all wavy. How yep. is it that these billions of tons of, of stone are sitting on these polygonal walls and the walls themselves, although sometimes they've been shaken or super weathered, like in Sardinia and Malta and in Greece, you see these, like the Temple of Delphi, you see these polygonal walls and they have gaps in them now, but it's because of the extreme antiquity and weathering. So is it 60,000 years? Is it 20,000 years? Is it pre-younger dries, post-younger dries? But why is it that they're still level? And something that's never been looked at is the foundational structure of these polygonal walls. So are they made of various metamaterials, which are terms for seismic metamaterials for how do you get a wall to not shake during an earthquake? But 
also how do you pre-compact it? Are they really just sitting on foundations or are they cut onto bedrock or is mm. it that it appears bedrock because it's been pre-compacted? So the very walls that they've been standing on, when I started looking into it, I met with archaeologists and they're like, Jared, no one's ever looked at that because everyone's looking for a sexy mummy. Mm. No one's looking at sexy soil. What's up with that? Amish people like soil. <laughs> now, yeah, we you went over no. about three or four different things that I've that would be good to go back to then. I mean, uh, something people need to, if they, yeah. if they aren't aware of this polygon, uh, polygonal masonry, in particularly I've, uh, the ones I've seen are in South America, you really need to check these out because yeah. these, they're not cubes. It's not like the pyramid where they're, they're, they're made of like cubes of of uh, of stone. They're, they're weird shapes and they're weird shapes in three dimensions, not yeah. just the outer face either, are they? How do, I mean, yeah, they're some of them fifteen thirty sided. Some some and they're they're deep. Some are multiple meters in size, width, and depth. So they're they're not just like four sided, like you said. They can be multiple sided. They can have fifteen, twenty, thirty. One of them is on the Bolivian bill. Um, it's ridiculous all the angles. Some are really small. They have joineries that are like yeah. a really small point, but the the width of the blocks are. I mean, some of them are like uh, Saxe Waman or Ollante Tambo, and it's not just there. Even on the pyramid itself, the same nubs, and there are polygonal blocks on the Great Pyramid and on Menkari and other pyramids there. You're, you're looking at many thousands of years of weathering, dynastic peoples coming and going, oh, we kind of get what's going on here, and then they start adapting and repiling everything and rebuilding everything, but with materials they understand. And it's always basalt it's always limestone it's always quartzite it's always seems to be conductive and built in some sort of an order right yeah yeah and you mentioned the spheres this is something i'm not aware of the stone spheres what's all on about i apologize for our next train you know this is a legit jared murphy interview (laughs) apologize for that it's all right Sorry, your actual question again? Yeah, the stone spheres. This isn't something I've seen I'm familiar with. You mentioned these stone spheres that they're finding everywhere. Uh, this isn't the micro-spheres, is it? So they start building banana plantations. In, and Okay, so here's the crazy thing. I, I, David Hatcher Childress loves to talk about the giant stone spheres that are all over the earth. They're in the Arctic, in Russia. Uh, they're in China. They're um, in New Zealand. And they're various sizes. They found one near in Bosnia that's 64 tons. And so there are things in the world called concretions that, for whatever reason, just like a snowball, dirt can roll into or create a ball that hardens and that they call it a concretion. So apparently, just like the hundredth monkey theory and the idea of spontaneous pyramid building, that aliens built everything, along with that, there is this idea that at some period in time, volcanoes for a trend decided when they would throw material in the air would somehow, this is the theory. This is no joke. This is the mainstream theory. These giant stone spheres were made because material floated through the air, like a snowball of volcanic stuff rolled into a ball atmospherically. And when they landed, it was a giant ball and then they hardened, but then volcanoes stopped doing that. But they did it for a while. <laughs> now they don't. Right. I, 
And so now they're building banana plantations. So the most famous place is in Costa Rica. And they have them everywhere. And it's crazy because they're different sizes. A lot of people, when we're talking about stone spheres, they're talking about the big ones, like the ones that are 64 tons or the, they're very odd. They were found in San Francisco when they started building the streetcars when we were going to have public transportation in the 1900s. They called them dinosaur eggs. They thought they were dinosaur eggs. But they also thought over periods of years, whether it was Bosnia or New Zealand or in Mexico or in Central America, they've been found everywhere. And they thought there might be gold in them. So it turns out that, one, they're, they're hollow. Two, they're different sizes. Three, some of them are the size of golf balls. Down to golf balls. So they're not even the size of uh, 64 tons. They can be very small. But they're all found in the ground. And so the big main theory is, well, they must have been buried with very important people because they're perfectly round. And then later in the last few years, people are like, well, they're not all perfectly round. Well, if you're dealing with Egan values, if you're dealing with sine, if you're dealing with pi, and you're dealing with frequencies and waves, a group of European researchers put out a couple papers that I write about in It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, which is currently being revised. So on one hand, I would say don't buy the book right now. Just go to notaliens.com. I'm doing other stuff. But we have two more books, but there's a whole section on these scientists that were doing experiments with stone spheres, one meter by one meter concrete stone spheres that then then they sliced like pie and so they broke the spheres up and posted them with steel so that the steel spheres or the stone spheres were held by steel rods that were expanded kind of like a, a round rubik's cube and what they found was if you take stone spheres in this case their experiment was with these round ones stick them in the ground proportionally distant from a not a single building but even a whole village or a series of buildings that they act as wave resonators and they cancel mute or disrupt earthquakes and 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 we find stone spheres all over the earth and everyone in the alternative history world all everyone the geological explanation is oh they're natural concretions they just got made by volcanoes when they were rolling dough. And that's just ridiculous. But because they're made out of various materials, there's been no material. So archaeology was art history, right? You went out to find things to put cool little statues on your Victorian mantle. You didn't go out to learn history. You threw things out that weren't cool, weren't jewelry, weren't gold, weren't something you could put in a museum. So things that aren't looked at is taking uh, like, geopolymer science and metamaterial science, uh, physics, geology, and actually applying those first rather than saying, I mean, it drove me nuts when I was in art history, the first year of college going, why is everything a fertility goddess? (laughs) I mean, why can't it be your like seventh grade, like kid who's in pottery class and just made it a big boob statue? (laughs) Why, Why isn't it just, you know, why is it a fertility goddess or, you know, it, it, it never made any sense to me. But these stone spheres, everyone's been scratching their head. They, they, where they used to roll things, but then they're like, well, they're not perfectly round. And then they're, then they're said to be perfectly round. But then on the, in the antiquity of them, in Costa Rica, if you look up the black and white photos, and I have them uh, in the book, ironically, they were only seriously looked at for four years by a woman whose last name really is Stone. You can't, you can't make that up. And, and, and they looked at it in the 40s, 
and they kept digging up rows and rows to plant for banana plantations in Costa Rica. And they they just kept finding stone spheres, like as big as the room you're sitting in. And like I said, golf balls. And and they're like, well, we don't know what these are, but they're in the way and we're going to make banana plantations. And, and, And yet they're everywhere. China, Russia, you know, United States, everywhere. And, and again, polygonal masonry, every continent, uh, everything in North Africa. Now, now you have engineered soil that no one's looking at because they're like, oh, isn't that interesting? Richest growing soil on earth has piezoelectric properties. And if you mix uh, not just that kind of soil where we think, oh, it's really good for growing food, but it has these electromagnetic properties that would be good for sending and receiving signals like a giant earth circuit, like a giant grid, like a giant computer. And so you combine that with the shapes of the constructions of the polygonal masonry, you have a building that's not only functioning well to stop an earthquake, you have a building that's functioning well in order to send and receive signals. And now you have stone ball wave resonators that are either propelling or muting the wave and frequency of your choice. Hence the sizes, the variance in shapes, the hollow the different materials. Well, now we need material scientists. This is a joint effort. We all have to be ready to be wrong. It's only shows like this that are willing to ask the questions because there are too many people in academic hubris that don't want to be wrong, have already cooperated their, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours on this paper. Mm. How many more papers do we need on King Tut? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm into it. I like dynastic history. I like Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's fun. Yeah, isn't but that fun? There's a, I mean, there's a fundamental sort of reluctance when it comes to examining prehistory, and uh, but as Graham Hancock famously always says, things just keep getting older, and it's it's only when it seems that it needs the turn of the spade to find something like um, Gebekli Tepe, something that's irrefutable, oh, yeah. something that's irrefutable, irrefutable to sort of push things back and and bring the the academics kicking and screaming forward. Yep. When I, 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 so I spent three and a half years working on my book. It's been five years. But when I started looking, and I tell everyone, when you find something interesting now, screenshot it. Because early on, I didn't know who Klaus Schmidt was. I didn't know what Gobekli Tepe was. I didn't know there was five other Tepes. I didn't know what to keep and what not. And for the first few months, it was very easy to go out and find that this is pre-Klaus Schmidt dying. And they had done organic testing. And they said they found organics that posted some material at the site to 36,000 years. Then I cannot find that information anymore. So I'm always, I'm always throwing it out to a new audience because these are the things us citizen scientists could maybe sort out. But at the same time, for a long time, they discussed that the site was 12 to 18,000 years old. And at 12 to 18,000 years old, well, that's interesting because, again, we were way younger, past younger Dryas. Before. We are yeah. way prior. Yeah, so now here it's f- fast forward. Here we are five years later, and now everyone says, yeah, Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old. I'm like, since when? You're already, like, dialing it back. Yeah. And, and again, you have giant megalithic pillars at a site that's not supposed to exist, but there's six other tepes. You've been exploring the site for 44 years, and God bless them, but at the same time, 5% of the site's dug up, and you guys are concluding that, oh, it's a Neolithic temple, and it's a temple. Of course it's a temple. Everything's a temple. It's like what you said before. The uh, the fertility, it must be a fertility cult, a temple for that probably. Yes. 
with our big booby statues. Yeah, exactly. It's a fertility or or a giant, you know, or a team. That yeah, you know, because there's always it's a between hunting and gathering. All I think about is building temples. And fertility. So it makes sense. <laughs> but then here we are with this site. And again, the verbiage is changing how we look at the site. So we're going from going, hey, it's a, uh, uh, okay, it was 18, maybe to 36,000 years old. And that's just the organics you're finding too. You're seeing a site with giant megalithic pillars. Yet of the megalithic pillars, you're seeing river rocks stacked between them. Like that's not even the same culture whoever's occupying this site and whenever they finish it off with an artist rendition, it's always people in loincloths banging rocks together. Yeah. The book flops. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cut off the book um, flops. Oh, I, I am uh, Jerusalem cruisers. <laughs> just like, just like <laughs> um, and, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, clearly no one, if you're going to cut out a 25 to, you know, like a, a four to eight meter pillar, but you finish off the structure with like rubble between the posts and then everything's always a lean to, they know how to cut stone, but no one knows how to cut wood. So everything looks like a thatched roof off of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're working with some of the hardest materials on the planet, but yeah, the uh, timber, they just can't seem to get a grip of. No, they know nothing about textiles. They can't get past flip-flops, and they just scratch their head at wood. It is a mystery how to cut that shit. I mean, what do we do? <laughs> we had uh, we had David Roll on a couple of weeks ago. He's an Egyptologist, and um, he wasn't taking me on when it with regard to speculating about the pyramids, but I did sort of try and twist his arm and get him to comment on these diorite bowls, uh, vases that I've found. And you've seen it, you oh, must have seen about them where they're sort of, they're, they're maybe this wide at the top and then they go down to a couple of inches at the neck and then they bowl out and they're, they're um, not universally thin. They're the same thickness all the way, the hollow obviously, and the same thickness all the way around. They're a machine, they're incredible. They're, I'm pretty sure we can't make them with everything we have today. No. So I asked no, him uh, and, I can't even, yeah. and his response was, well, they had sand and they had water and they had a lot of time. And, you know, I respect David. Oh. I th- it was great talking to him, but I'm, I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying that. <laughs> Did he not say that he had drills, though, as well? I don't I think. Yeah, but drills can't drill down and then, and then out. Mm. And be and, and be you a little tiny hole and then out. Yeah. No. I mean, and what kind of drills uh, did they have? They, you know, because I drill stuff every day. I drill. If I have to drill a porcelain tile, it's a bloody nightmare for me. Porcelain. <laughs> you know, if you use a steel, a standard steel yeah. bit on porcelain, it's blunt in thirty seconds in the yep. bin. Yeah, but they're 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 making yep. stuff out of diorite, which is one of the hardest stones on the planet, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, and they're doing it, and you can see the machining. You can see the lathe work, and you can't replicate the, the density, like you said there. The density is consistent, and it's not just a couple. I think it's such a great thing because at Saqqara, at the Step Pyramid, they find over 40,000 of these vases, and something that really gets pointed out. One, it's not just one kind. It's not just diorite. They make them out of all these shales, like the schist disc, but they make them out of also high crystalline, and some of them, some of the vases that it almost never gets pointed out are translucent. 
I mean, they're so thin, you can see through them. And they're exactly what you said. They are perfectly, perfectly, the, 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 the dimensions of the thickness does not change. This takes highly advanced machinery. And my, my description, and I, I guess I'm going to use it again, is just the, the story of the blinky board. For a thousand years, people bang on the blinky board and you get an orange light on one side. And if you bang over here, you get a red light. And for a thousand years, I've been banging on the blinky board and someone walks up and says, that's a 747 and you're banging on the control panel. What are you doing? And then somebody else yells, heretic, burn him. And, <laughs> and, and, and then you're looking at it and what's happened is, is that you're getting a response and what's worse in that thousand years is if you've been praying to the blinky board or asking it, and and if, and if even sixty percent, like the weatherman, if even sixty percent of the time you've gotten a correct orange blink instead of a red blink, then you got yourself some serious believers, and you're not going to change their minds or be able to talk to them. And we we can't wait like Teotihuacan in Central America. It took them ninety nine years to uncover the, what they have uncovered. And it, it's like, look, it's important to discover all human history. So if you spend 35 years of your career piecing back painfully all the fractional shards of a vase, well, it's kind of like putting together the entry ticket to Disney World but never excavating Disney World at the ticket counter. You know, you, you we need to have a more pragmatic but also we can't have 5% of Gobekli Tepe dug up and now they're like, well, let's build a visitor center on top of an unexplored site. <sighs> and I'm like, are, are you insane? You, you, all of you on the alternative side, and then the Egyptologist, where it's like you can't, you can't look at a technology where we don't have the ability to replicate it. That's the starting point. If you don't have the ability to replicate it, then you can't tell me that they were using abrasives and what a bunch of blind people who are really good discovering depths can read their own minds and feel their way to the proper thickness of a vase. Like you said, with a diameter, a couple centimeters, a few centimeters, what, what device got inside there? I I'm a builder. I, I know how to do stonework too. You and I like just cutting or cutting through porcelain that that's just a straight cut. These people are going inside the most, uh, not just difficultly hard, but there are, no matter how sharp, like you said, you dull out the blade. So in those vases, how are you getting it like the most fractional, like chip up of a quartz or something and your blade hits it and just shatters mm-hmm. the vase. How are they doing it to that precision? And you guys offer nothing other than witchcraft and, and sand. Yeah. Or aliens. All right. Well, there you go. So it, uh, yeah. it always has to be, you know, we've never been more conscious than we are yet, you know, because there's genetic abilities. There's there's so many weird cuts in our DNA and there's so many things biologically that don't make sense. And so it's got to be aliens. But like you said, uh, you have these Egyptologists and these mainstream mainstream scientists that I'm out there advocating that archaeologists need to be allowed to fail. They need to be allowed to not find what they're supposed to find. They need to be funded and know that they're funded. They need to not get a degree based on that joke about, you know, uh, archaeology changes at the, uh, the ideas in archaeology change at the rate of the death of one archaeologist a year yeah. or whatever. You know, that's, uh, so was he overall uh, open to any other ideas? I'm very curious. I mean, he's, he's quite controversial in the realm of Egyptology, uh, Egyptology because, because his research and his position is advocating a... Um, 
an adjustment in the traditional timeline of ancient Egypt, a 300-year bringing forward, if you like, of the collapse of the Bronze Age, and which wipes out the Greek Dark Age, uh, brings forth the Trojan War. So he's, he's actually controversial, and he debates other archaeologists and Egyptologists on this subject. Um, it's... Yeah, it's so interesting because, like, the Bronze Age, the copper, you know, I, I live close to one of the Great Lakes in America. Uh, everyone knows, I don't understand how it's an open elephant in the room that, oh, there was all this open copper mining and that the Phoenicians and assorted other people were here. And you can immediately, the, 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 all the metal can be traced to clearly here for a lot of these Bronze Age materials. And even if you don't account for the the hieroglyphs or the geoglyphs of Phoenician boats on, let's just say it's the material itself. Well, you have a timeline that you, you have the maps, the maps of the Sea Kings, uh, the Piris Reese map. These people were traveling. You have Amphora Bay in Brazil, Amphora Bay. It's not like one Roman vessel ended up down uh, off blown off course. I they mean, got lost. Yeah, you have a clear shipping route along with cocaine, and now on to, uh, on top of the drugs, on top of tobacco, on top of everything, at least in reference to the metallurgy. Now we have engineered soil. Not not we're not saying like, hey, I drink Coca Cola. You guys have a European version of Coca Cola, different mix, but same company or a different company. I'm talking the same Terra Preta, the same man-made engineered soil is in North Africa, oh, trade route, and Brazil and South America and Central America and Australia. How do you explain that? And yet we have histories of the Egyptians on all those coasts, just the Egyptians, just dynastically the Egyptians. Yet we have these descending informations like Solon talking, you know, where Plato gets all his info and all that. Mm. And the Egyptians talking about, look, we had, we have a Kings list with 36,000 years of Kings. And everyone's like, well, you know, the Egyptians knew how to do a lot. Yeah. Well, based on what you see here and look at those vases, but yeah, they don't know what they were talking about. They don't, they don't remember how many Kings they had. Oh, it's all mythological. No, they they were pretty clear that it was real Kings. Well, that's just not possible. Oh, oh, but you didn't think Gobekli Tepe was there, nor did you think the Antikythera device was in Ooh. the bay. And, and then what, what, don't you one. love what they say every time, though? Uh, it's the first. <laughs> yeah, and that's something uh, Graham Hancock, I remember saying at one point, because, you know, he's been advocating for this sort of lost civilization hypothesis for decades now, and the re- the common rebuttal he used to get was, where's the evidence for, you know, a civilization 10, 15,000 years ago, and then up it pops, the pot-bellied hill in, in Turkey. And uh, but the thing well, is, I yeah, think... then you have to ignore the Jakarta Pyramid. Which pyramid, sorry? And the Jakarta Pyramid. Oh, which one is that? 20, uh, geologists found it. Uh, Banan Padang. Oh, Banan Padang. Yeah, the, yeah uh, Indonesia. Yeah, yeah so, you, you have, yeah, it's 23,000 years old at a minimum. And then you also have to, let's just take the Bimini Road as a natural formation. You have an entire pyramid city discovered 14 years ago by those uh, Spanish um, galleon-seeking hunters off the coast of Cuba. At, at a minimum, there's a picture of the city. I have it in my book. This city is at least, it's 2,300 feet. It's 1,700 meters deep. 
<laughs> and it, yeah, they took a photo of it. Not that we're into conspiracies, but you know, uh, National Geographic bought the rights to that story, and guess what? We've heard about it Zero. so far. Seventeen. But you can see the picture. You, Seventeen hundred yeah. feet below sea level, off the coast of Cuba. Oh no, twenty three hundred feet, seventeen hundred meters. Now the old thing I always hear meters. is that after the Younger Dryas catastrophe, sea levels rose four hundred feet. Yep. Now this is seriously deeper than that. Right. Now we know mainstream science talks about Doggerland, yeah, and even four to six thousand years ago a lot more of the French coast and England and every and Scotland and Ireland, everything was way more connected. Now you go to 8,000 years ago and, and, and most of Doggerland is above the sea line and even ancient origins and science daily, there is sedimentary, what I'm going to call nano archeology span going on where they have actually just published that in salt water, they have found sedimentary remnants of the flora and fauna of Doggerland. So we're not even talking pre-Younger Dryas, but you hit pre-Younger Dryas, all of Scotland, Ireland, and a significant amount of under the Baltic. Like the Baltic Mm. was really just a a lake. Uh, The Mediterranean was a lake. The Caribbean was a lake. And then what you have is millions of square miles of land that's underwater. And so here's here's something interesting. We have the Eye of Africa, the reed-cut structure. Yeah. uh, It's seven eight hundred feet above sea level. Right. So possible Atlantis as far as concentric ring city. Right. But that's that suddenly shifts to 73, 7,800 feet above water. Then we have this city off the coast of Cuba that goes down 2,300 feet. But then we have Lake Titicaca going up 12,600. So has there been a lot of shifting and when Mm. everyone's talking younger Dryas? One of the things I'm trying to bring more attention to is that volcanic eruption that, again, we're guessing is about 75,000 years ago. You have a worldwide polygonal building, very advanced society where we're getting the remnants of what's left of them. And yet we also know in mainstream science about 55-ish, 50 to 60,000 years ago, Denisovan, Neanderthal, and humans, and a mystery 14% genome all started to mix. I wonder what kind of disaster happened 60, 75,000 years ago that everything goes topsy-turvy, worldwide advanced society falls, some of them survive, which is what I'm saying, it's not aliens worse, it's us, is that there is a very possible likelihood that this very advanced uh, UFOs and things that we see are remnants of a much more advanced human race. But yeah. evidence, sticking with evidence for an advanced society, it, the, the city off the coast of Cuba drove me to create a map of the world, which I'll I'll have to email it to you, of what did the world look like at about 60,000 years ago, 55, 60,000 years ago? What would our coastlines be? And we're telling ourselves the story of us. And and, and it was Graham Hancock who, I was fascinated when he dove off the coast of India. Uh, Remember that city? It's heavy currents, dark, murky water, uh, all the people in India have legends of this city and that it was, you know, formed by Krishna. You know, again, oldest religion on earth. We never pay attention to it because we have the magical Western divide. You know, everything's Christian. Yet most people don't believe that. And and then you have the Hindus just with a small text with 
gods fighting in aerial combat and basically nuclear weapons. But let's just say it's all allegory and story mm-hmm. and they're silly because they're from India and they don't know anything. <laughs> and so here we are, everything's Greek and Roman. Mm. And he, yeah. So here is the story that we tell ourselves over all of these uh, possibilities. And then, well, the story of that city that looks like a giant pyramid building and complex that's underwater and the 40 to 60,000 structures, including hundreds of pyramids found in Guatemala. And that's just one scan, right? That's that the, lied, that's oh, the no, LIDAR stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Like two years ago now, yeah. it's been two years. I can't believe the it. Right. Yeah. And, and art. Yeah, and the archaeologists said we have to stop looking at South America as a place where our uh, cultures went to die. We have to look at it as a place where maybe culture started. And if you start looking at the big, big, biggest elephant in the room besides consistent polygonal pyramid structures that are made, most importantly, out of giant, giant megalithic blocks. So when you look at the Central American Teotihuacan, Tapumapunku, and Tiwanaku and Ollanti Tambo and Sacsayhuaman and Cusco, all the places in South America to Egypt to Indonesia to even New Zealand. There's polygonal walls, and by the way, there's a stone sphere. The holiest, most sacred thing on Easter Island is a stone sphere to the natives to the Rapa Nui. Right. There is a, a stone sphere on Easter Island, and all of it everywhere has polygonal masonry. But what about underwater? How many polygonal cymatic walls are in stone spheres? And if you can tell me now that you're in salt water off the coast of England, France, Scotland, and Ireland, finding sedimentary remains of Doggerland, and you're telling me you can determine the flora and fauna from crystalline content, that's thousands of years old from salt water, we are literally in a revolution of understanding. And like you said, you want to be polite. I want to be, I want to support every archeologist and the ability to without uh, loss of their license, their credentials to fail and succeed at finding things that don't match the narrative. But if they don't, I can't, I don't want us or everyone to slow down on their efforts to learn all this stuff because it's clear that we're missing this, it's not just that Gobekli Tepe existed. And when you throw somebody in, you know, the Jerusalem cruisers and the loincloth and go, oh, we missed another society, but, you know, they were primitive. Yeah, so is the Apple store after it's been rioted. It's <laughs> primitive. There's no more apples, but it's it, it's been readapted. It's been reused. And then worse, over 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 years, it's been, it's been repaired and then maintained, which means it's right. had new work on top of the old work on top of the new old work. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it was repaired and maintained. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a famous site which I'm fascinated with, which is Baalbek in Lebanon, which has the famous Trilithon oh, stones. Yeah. And it's, uh, you Those know, are- it's always said, well, the Romans, the Romans built this because, but you've got these retaining walls with stones. 800,000 yeah. tons. You've got 1,200 ton stones still in the quarry. And, you know, because yeah. there's some... Yep. And that's three miles. And and the three Romans miles. use... It seems to me that the Romans use these stones as the foundation to build the Temple of Jupiter. They didn't put those fecking stones in there. Any, Yeah, anyone who does construction, you look at the way they stack the blocks of the temple, and I'm like, well, that's a giant block, and then that block next to it's kind of big, but 
but they stacked a bunch of stuff that it's not really consistent with how you would build even in the scale. So they have the base of what was left of something. They have an obliterated building that they restack what they find. Mm. And something else that rarely gets pointed out is like you said, they worked in diorite. They are working in these basalts and these quartzites, some of the hardest stones on earth. And at Baalbek originally in, okay. In the last couple hundred years, modern archeology, span there was, and this is actually going to be interesting, just like all our sexy soil talk and no cool mummies and ancient <laughs> mythologies. And we're not doomsdaying anyone, so I'm sorry. You know, I'll throw out the keywords so people keep listening. <laughs> Doomsday, prepping, <laughs> watch out, Satan, um, <laughs> the devil. And here is a building where you get to those megalithic blocks, and I want to come back to those, but rarely pointed out our original, okay, in the last 200 years, we found over 200 of those pillars at Baalbek, right? And those pillars, the Roman ones are cut in sections. Column drums, Some yeah. of those, yeah, but the original ones at Baalbek, they're single pieces, <laughs> 60 feet, single pieces, perfectly hewn. 60, and you know how big those pillars are, right? You've seen people standing in front of them. Somebody had to turn that giant pillar and put it on a lathe, like the like the unfinished obelisk. I like, do you see the oxen turning the like? How many Amish does it take to turn that lathe? Yeah. I what what do you do with that? So those 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 columns are also from a great distance, and there is even some of the workable stones that the Egyptians were credited with using. Uh, the very famous temple that has the helicopter image and the uh, and the yeah. tank. Okay, uh, something that's not pointed out, and my friend and uh, 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 co-host on Not Aliens, Jennifer Deo, the archaeologist, she, uh, we're going through, in my members area on Not Aliens, we have all of her trip, all of her photos from Egypt. She goes, they're up on top with Mohammed Ibrahim, uh, who I've gotten an interview also, uh, he knows uh, he does tours and he's in, you know, he does all this ancient Egyptian research and, and they're standing there on top of that temple and behind him to me, looks like, you know, a couple meter thick. It looks like the top of the roof. Right. But they're standing like on a sidewalk and then it looks like there's a raise up behind them and it's this giant, looks like a giant cake, you know, but it's the roof to that temple. What a lot of people don't know is that that up to six meter thick, uh, that piece, no, six meter, two meter thick, so about six feet, that's a single piece of limestone, the entire ceiling of that temple. How, how, how long is it? That and move it? How long and wide is it? Oh, it's huge. I asked, and to the best of what we can tell from the photo, it's like between 40 or 50 feet, or it, it's got to be length. I think it's close to like maybe 80 or 90 feet, almost something like that. And like 40, 50 feet wide. And it's, and it's two meters thick. Who cut that? How did you cut that? Where, the, where did you move that to? Uh, How yeah, did that happen? Yeah, Jared, but they had wooden cranes. They also had sand. And sand, yeah. And, Have you, and ox. Uh, are you guys Beavis and Butthead Mike Judge fans? Yeah. Do you remember Idiocracy? Idiocracy. 
No, go on. Uh, it, it's a movie with, yeah, Ju- Mike Judge made a movie called Idiocracy. Yeah, with the 500 years in the future, the guy, Luke Wilson, wakes up. The actor, Luke Wilson, wakes up. He's the smartest guy in the world because well, everyone's gotten really dumb. And they have a fake Gatorade called Brawny, and they're now watering plants with it because it's what it's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. <laughs> and so they've forgotten how to water plants. And all I can think about is idiocracy. Like, you know, they got sand. They got water. They got electrolytes. They got what stone craves. A, a lot of this suggests get it. a lot of this suggests that we're missing something very fundamental in our knowledge, whether in engineering or manufacturing or logistics or mechanical advantage. We're, we're missing it. something. Well, the, and then the thing that same temple area and all over Egypt, all over South America, Puma Punku, all over there and all over the world, all these sites also contain. So they all have stone spheres. They all have polygonal masonry. We do not know what their foundations are. This is usually important. Mm. What is the compaction of the soil, clay, sand? Did they just like bringing those pillars and the material from not just the couple, the three kilometer or three mile away, uh, Baalbek, uh, like you said, the, the Romans were coring the stones off the other stones because they couldn't carry those stones. We can't carry those stones. No. And and not only that, right? So then what's the foundational material? What if, what if like some of the stuff from Aswan in Egypt, not only did it go to Baalbek and go all over like 400 miles, a thousand miles, you know, it went all over. And there's lots of court, same thing in Tiwanaku. You have stones coming and casted stones. So we have geopolymers all over the earth, by the way. Uh, we always say Roman concrete, but that's very interesting that there's, Again, concrete all over the earth, but really, really, really good concrete that doesn't need rebar. Ours falls apart in 20 years. And here's uh, the use of these stone spheres everywhere, but there's also keystone cuts. So you have these unnecessary, like you said, very first thing, interlocking blocks that are multiple feet wide, multiple feet long, sometimes 30-sided, 20-sided, 15-sided, and they're not even sides. And and yet they all fit together like marshmallows. They're perfectly fit together. But then why do you need between two 800-ton stones a metal connecting device? Yeah, just explain you, this. I, it's like these these cuts out of the two stones, where the two stones meet. There's yeah. like a, it's a bit like a dog bone, dog treat shape cut yeah. out of the two stones where it looks like some piece of steel or iron or something has been used. It's like a brace. It's like a, a joining bracket between two hundred ton, hundred ton stone blocks, I mean, it just defies logic. It, why they it, would be there? You don't, you don't. But if you're dealing, if you're dealing with quartzites, and Yusuf Awan has a great video that was filmed for Uncharted X for for Ben's channel, Uncharted X, yeah. and it's a short video. And I think the reason it's important is Yusuf took a miniature like those. It looks like one of those voltage towers. You know, it has diorite, limestone, and basalt. I don't know if you've seen it, but they do the disc. They have the post. It's it's not that tall. It's about something you could sit between your mic and the desk. And they electrify. You would not believe the current you can put through a limestone, basalt, and granite. And so they have discs. They have a post. And of the, all the pieces, it looks like a little giant voltage tower, just like the... Uh, um, you know, the big giant light bulbs in Egypt that people mm-hmm. look, those look like light bulbs. And then they're like, they're not light bulbs, but then it looks like those are voltage posts. But 
They're not voltage vote posts. They're they're that's just an interpretive thing. Well, they built one and they put thousands of volts. You would not believe how well it conducts electricity and manages it. If you had those keystones, and some are wedge shaped, some are like you said, they're some look like bow ties yeah, on both say, sides yeah. and they come together. They, but but they're consistent. They're all they're all over the earth. And at that temple, I have photos of keystone cuts, and lots of people have taken these. So we're talking about a volcanic eruption 75,000, 60,000 years ago, not Younger Dryas, which is now the final like capstone of, boy, everything's going to crap 11 and a half to 13,000 years ago. Dynastic people finally have enough coming out of the woods mentality that they're like, look, uh, Egypt, um, they're the first archaeologists, the people that come in even 36,000 years ago, and they start mimicking and building what they find. But there are many examples of keystone cuts turned sideways because they're poured in and no material science research. They're like, oh, that looks like a copper thing. Okay, but where's the material science paperwork on that? Who's testing the conductivity? What is the metal composition? That would be an interesting thing to know, right? But they find these blocks and they build new temples and the keystone cuts are now sideways and in two different courses. And you can see the one fits with the other Mm -hmm. and you're like, you know, should be like that, but it's not. And they've clearly adapted what they found. And the same thing, Eric von Danigan writes about the Greeks and you look at their history and they say, well, we didn't build the temple of Delphi. Uh, Well, the gods did. (laughs) And, Oh, oh, okay. And who built the Aztecs? The, you know, the Spaniards. It's like who built this? Oh no, we. This was the gods. We the gods did this. So we, we just found it because nobody puts river rock on top of polygonal masonry, like just little. Like you give up, you quit. Yeah, more like, bricks. You know, Bill won the vote to put the thatched roof on, so we're going back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is something that interests me particularly from from authors like Graham Hancock. Work yeah. when you mentioned the um, the gods because we have these founding myths of people like whether it be Viriculture in South America or Hermes in uh, in Greece these sort of founders of civilization who seem to be every everywhere you go in the world there seems to be some sort of founding myth of someone coming and and sort of downloading all this information onto the locals. To me, it looks like uh, ancient Peace Corps. Hmm. So. Let's just say, so there's rock cut ruins. One of the things I'm working on in my next book is I had no time to go into rock cut ruins. So Sardinia is a huge focus, Malta. The issue is Eric Von Danigan took Buzz Aldrin down to Bolivia. And, you know, there's some old footage way back in the day of, hey, there's these very complex, large rock cut tunnels all over the earth. And there are storage rooms or like places like Petra where there's, uh, some of the rooms at Petra that rarely get pointed out are 320,000 cubic square feet cut out, basically perfectly square. Out of and the bedrock. It like, is it out of the bedrock as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 320,000 square foot rooms. And what are you doing in a room like that? What are you doing with space like that? Why do you need underground management of materials unless you live through multiple uh, geological catastrophes or cosmic catastrophes or weaponized scalar terrifying weapon catastrophes. And no matter what your society that if you build megalithically, it's easy to survive floods, but let's just say 75, 60,000 years ago, there's, and, and 
and this now goes into what happens when you survive. You're highly advanced, and I always describe it as a cruise ship. You and I might know our favorite whiskey, but we may not know how to brew it. We may not know how to distill it. We not, may not know how to. We know, we know of flying, but we don't know anything about flying. Or I work with metal, but I'm not. I don't know how to make a forgery, a forge. I don't know how to do any anvil work. I'm not a blacksmith. You know. So there's, if you represented all of humanity in just simply one cruise ship, and that's what makes it through an unexpected disaster. And you come above the surface of the earth after hiding or waiting it out, and you only have scraps of your technology. And Atlantis was really described as a civilization. It wasn't one city, right? It was supposed to be multiple cities. And what if that represents the last time primitive people had access to the most advanced people? Maybe they just kept retreating from what was left of really if you have a bunch of warring, mongering, eating everything that used to be a highly advanced, 100% conscious human race that is now devolved to the, oh, uh, you know, the warlocks of, uh, you know, Jules Verne, and now they're just eating everything, and you're like, you know what? We need to send out the guy with the red beard over here and teach them how to farm. <laughs> well, we can't get to those other 50,000, you know, pig stickers over there, but you know what? They'll just rule these guys that are farming and now they won't go anywhere so we can still have a city over here but let's get like half of the 16 million and we can all turn this into the giant uh lord of the rings keep scene and we have the weapons to take them all out but instead of heaps of bodies why don't we just teach them how to fish again and so we're really sorry about religion also bill's fault we tried <laughs> we interfered we're so sorry and we thought you guys would like get consciousness again. We thought you'd like start to meditate. We didn't know you'd burn people at the stake. And that, that, that I think is something that may have happened where Denise, even Neanderthal, uh, and we always describe Neanderthal again, they, they were bigger than us, denser bones than us, stronger than us. They had bigger brains than us, but they're always described as primitives. They're always, but yet the big elephant in the room that I was going to get to were the elongated skulled uh, paracas or in, in Africa, there's elongated skulled humans all over the damn earth. Now then, what do you do when I first see these elongated skulls, my initial thought is this is some sort of strapping that's done at birth before the skull fuses. Yeah, and then, and then they finally do the research, and I showed it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd heard about the work from Brian Forster that, you know, they're doing the genetic testing, that it looks like the practice are from the, you know, caucus region of uh, basically Russia and that, you know, maybe they were the first super advanced humans that after everything crashed, they were like, screw it. We're going to go make textiles, get high and live on the beach. We're going to Peru. <laughs> and then they just quit. They became the first Amish of their time period. Yeah. They were just like, we're done. But you're, you're talking about people who like, there are mimic cultures that smash their heads together. The crazy thing about the Paracas is one, the skull goes in at a different location to the spine. Uh, ours go in the middle, theirs goes in the back. Their forum magnum, their um, the arterial locations that feed the brain, the arterial locations are different on their skulls than ours, and they are missing a suture line. So one of the you know, so we have the cross in the skull that the suture lines of the skull itself, they don't have, they only have one, and 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 also big elephant in the room. Most of them are redheads. <laughs> so yeah so Veracocha was a redhead yeah it's famous redheads and beards 
Yep, gingers everywhere. The mm. whole earth was Irish at one point. And then we blended down. I don't know what happened. But here it is. You have a, a physically born, they've even recently found a paracus, another fetus. But it's not the only location, but this was a fetus. And again, the, these people, uh, Brian Forster had shown them to doctors. And I, I, know, I know a few, I, I know actually a few surgeons and a couple surgical nurses. And I showed them the pictures of these skulls. And they're like, I've never seen anything like that. You know, it's not in their forte because they're working on humans now, right? But what do you do with every large billion-dollar college in the universe that hasn't tested? Why is there? Why why can't all of us right now collectively just Google up the genetic DNA solution for the practice when they are not the same as us? Yeah, why is it down to Brian Forrester on YouTube to do? Yeah, this why stuff? is it down? Right? Why is it? Down? It's like, hey, another drone footage, and I love Brian Forrester. He's it. He's the one doing it. it you know, Harvard and Oxford and uh, everywhere else that has the money to do this, they're not. They're not doing this biological testing. No. I mean, you can just pick the house of cards. It's like you. Well, Graham Hancock, perfect, perfect. Uh, we're a species with amnesia that apparently some people are. In, they're beyond plausible deniability now. Yeah, and but this is sort of a historical hangover, isn't it? I know from when we were taught to um, Anthony Stokes about archaeology in uh, North America, particularly, and he, he talked about the role that the Smithsonian have had in potentially, again, we don't like conspiracies, but <laughs> potentially covering up evidence and locking stuff away, you know, stuff away in vaults never to be seen again and whatnot. Do you think that the Smithsonian in particular have had a role in this? And remember, the Smithsonian is a the Smithsonian is a baby British museum. Yeah, I mean the Smithsonian's yeah. So so the whole thing is a collective uh, association of people who have a narrative. They have to protect the narrative, and there's no reason for it. There's literally no reason to protect this narrative. And so yes, they've done it. And like the Kincaid, like the like the. Grand Canyon Kincaid story of Egyptian artifacts. Probably not true. It probably really was a joke. But at the same time, we have examples of articles of the Smithsonian coming here to Minnesota. We had thousands of mounds. We literally have a suburb of Minneapolis and St. Paul called Mound, Minnesota, yeah. and Mounds of You. Those are separate cities, and each of them are named after mound burials. Yeah. Not a couple, not five hundreds and thousands of them everywhere that were mowed down depending on the area, but totally thousands of them and that were said to have giants because there would be a news report. And then it was the Smithsonian came and now there's no more news. It's like not one article. It's It's not over and over. It's not a secret that the Smithsonian for political reasons wanted to undermine the sort of um, indigenous history of North America, because this is the age of empires. No, it's stated and, policy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they. I, I even quote them in my book. Um, the stated history was anything other, any other evidence. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, "This is the stated director of the Smithsonian says any evidence that does not uh, distinctly." Cr- uh, distinguish the native American as a complete savage will not be accepted into our history. There's pyramids in America. There is mound pyramids primitive and there are the the largest earthwork 
in in all the world, the the Serpentine Mound in Ohio mm. is ridiculous. It has all sorts of astrological alignment alignments. America's Stonehenge, where I'm going on May first to do that virtual lecture, is um, that that site has serpentine walls that Dennis just uncovered. Serpentine walls are all over, not just here, but the Canada, um, the just the entire eastern area, and then we we we. And then you have that whole comment, including Graham Hancock and everyone else, where you ask an archaeologist, well, don't you think we should dig down and look further? And they're like, no, there was, there's no history here. Don't look at the man behind the green curtain. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me you're not at bedrock. No. Or, or we're at a layer that's hardened. Well, there couldn't be anything under that because that would be older than the Clovis first. There is no Clovis <laughs> first. I mean, we have Michael Cremo's work. We have uh, Wailaco, Mexico. Virginia Steen McIntyre, he's been talking about this for 35 years. You know, she gets called in. She's a geologist. She got roasted. She got fired. And now she's getting sweet revenge, I think, because all of us are talking more and more about what Michael Cremo talked about for years is she went to the site in northern Mexico, and this is an anatomically correct human site. These are anatomically correct humans. Just referencing back to the Hindu Vedas, millions of years of anatomical human history, or at least mystified humans that don't understand what they're watching human history, 275,000 year old site, a campfire site, hundred percent human. And they're like, well, you don't understand the Clovis came to America first and there's no way this is 275,000 years old. And it's been 30 something years. And now we know the sites between maybe 330 and a half a million years old. And then now what are we going to do? Where, where do advanced, we have 150 plus tribes on earth that live all over that right now they don't use cell phones. They are not on our technology. They have no blinky bar neon signs. They are 100% living in loincloths practically and banging rocks. And right now, if our society gets wiped out, <laughs> their eolus and neolith tools, they're still there, you know, yeah. but you know, is your glass mug? I don't know. No, 500 it, it, years. It's, not, it, it's a literally within five, 600 five years, hundred. all our civilization, you won't find yeah. a trace of it pretty much. Will you? I mean, steel, iron, it all rusts away to nothing. That's why we, that's why we, we always looking at megaliths at stone because that seems to survive. Yeah. And we don't think about, you know, look at the house you're in. You have plaster or sheetrock on the walls. Then you have lath or a wire lath, or you have just the studs and are they wood or are they metal? And then you're on a foundation and that's why this is so exciting. So I I like to write. I like to talk about this. I do the live work and I do the co-hosting and everything else. But the reality is I like to do the research and I'm, I'm a rock climber. I'm, I'm not the, I'm not Alex Honnold, not even close, (laughs) but I like to that guy's insane. I don't want to throw that out there for all you skeptics out there. It's like, oh, he says he rock climbs. Is he Alex Honnold? No. But why are we not going back to the Grand Canyon if there was a cave with Egyptian artifacts? Oh, it's it's restricted. Well, no, actually, it's not. You can hike and you can climb. And were there a lot of miners there? Yes. But are there rock-cut ruins that could be like those places in Petra? Yes. And are we going back? Yes. That's That's been in the works for about a month. And I'm going to America's Stonehenge, not just to visit, but there is possibly a dolmen. There are standing stones like at Karnak. You have all those mysterious standing stones all over Ireland, Scotland, and England. And yeah. it's unbelievable. They They look like... That's that interesting thing about Stonehenge, where, again... Part of Gobekli Tepe and Stonehenge in their similarities is that 
you have very ancient megalithic, very well cut, hard as stones, polished well, and then they're found and they're adapted. And it's a thing. If druids use it for a thousand and a half years, well, that's a thing. If you go do yoga at Chernobyl for a thousand years, that's a thing. But it was still a nuclear power plant. So you have a standing stone, which is really a megalithic structural point on a building that has been dusted because the metal and the wood and the lath and all the material sciences and, you know, plastic pharaoh behind you is gone. And the stone isn't. And then a society comes along and goes, you know what? That's a great idea. Like at Easter Island, the first Moai, the oldest Moai are made of basalt. They're the hardest stone. They're the most well-polished. They're the most complex in their creation. Then the later ones, you got people scratching their head and going, I don't know, This we can chisel out of this stone. Let's make a big Easter Island body thing out of this because they can manage with that stone. Mm. So the same thing I've noticed at Gobekli Tepe, there are different, they're pointing out that, oh, some of these pillars are built differently. Stonehenge, some of these pillars are different. But the weathering on all of these sites, and, and the other question is, like at Stonehenge, I'm only bringing this up from a site geological age reference. They get that, remember that LIDAR that just came out, what, a few months ago? They're like, oh, there's a one and a half, you know, like a three kilometer wide diameter. Post post holes, wasn't it, they found? Yeah, but are those post holes old or are those post holes actually part of an original structure where they moved all the hinge stuff from there? Did they break up an old hinge to build a new hinge? We're just assuming that's the original location. But, you know, people, I remember Brian Forrester, to your point, he goes to Stonehenge and then looks through and they're like, is this two pillars? And he goes, and then the gal he was with goes, uh, who's an expert on Stonehenge, she goes, no, 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 that's an original single column, but it's so weathered, you can now look through it. You can practically jump through it. How much weathering did that take to put your body through it? How long has that been sitting there that... And, and it doesn't look anything like it did even when they found it. I try to find archaeological records because we have it's busy. We have three trips planned. One's to South America to do megalithic foundation work because we want to know the layers of the foundation of what makes up megalithic structures. Are they artificial? Are they like what if there's a crushed layer of a seashell from like a thousand miles away for like just one inch of foundation? And and then what if the next layer is piezoelectric, not just soil, but what if it's some sort of sedimentary mix? We're not thinking about the foundations because they're not, again, sexy, but the very foundations of these structures, the very soil that you guys walk out wherever you live and walk around, you, the assumption is, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, trees, things die, their soil collects, things. Yeah, but engineered soil can now, if you, if we can discover the flora and fauna of long gone dogger land from saltwater sedimentary objects, how hard is it for us to identify, well, this, these, these are the makes of Terra Preta. And in Europe, there's something called Chernozems and they're in North America here. They're in, they're in America. They're in uh, Canada. They're all over. That's another engineered soil that there's also a black market for How much more are we going to find in the sands of the Sahara, in the Mongolian deserts, why do we have Corinthian pillars and columns in Mongolia and also in Greece? <laughs> Aren't they the same builder? 
that's a fun one, isn't it? Yeah, there's just so much questions, isn't there? There's so many questions. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. There's just all this I'm weird so, so- evidence and... Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm all up for doing this more. The issue is you can never do it. Like, how can we touch all of this in one issue? We've yeah, left Matt and Ben out completely. Yep. <laughs> you, anything you want to ask Matt and Ben? Because we're rocking up on time already. I know. I know. You guys, we're, yeah. Oh. <laughs> You're stunned. I know. It's, it's Matt. I love absorbing all this stuff. Every episode, I'm like mind blown <laughs> yeah I've just been googling everything as you've been going along as well the Cuban the Cuban uh, lost city looks good to look into oh, yeah. pyramids and stuff yeah and if anyone wants a deep dive on the elongated skulls uh, like you mentioned Brian Forrester Brian with an E just go to his YouTube channel he's got loads of stuff on it hasn't he yeah he wrote a book on the they did DNA testing, but more work needs to be done. But at a minimum, the suture lines, the form magnum, like the arterial dissections, all that's in the book. Mm. I would go get his. Yeah, I'm promoting Brian's book. Go get yeah. Brian's book because there's a lot of research out there. But, you know, I and I'm doing that virtual conference, but it's it's worth looking at that elongated skull question. And anyone, you know, you know, for everyone out there listening, if you have a friend in a university setting who's archaeologically or biologically interested in the human race asks the question, why isn't there, tell me when are, when are you going to test the Paracas? When are you going to test any elongated skull that has those suture lines? When are you going to look at it? Not if, when. Mm-hmm. That's a bad question for people. You want to end a party or at least get it going. <laughs> well, well, Jared, where's the best place to go for people to follow you in your work? Yeah, so I co-host Conflict Radio. You can find me there, but I also, of course, have notaliens.com. That's my site. It posts like this interview, I will always link to your, you and the other interviews I do. And there's always something new and different. I, of course, exclusively interview people on notaliens.com also. And I will be live at America's Stonehenge. You can buy a virtual ticket. I'm doing a three-hour lecture, which is very different than us just having this conversation. We're going to blow everyone's minds, basically just going through a more fast-paced, in-person, uh, well, it'll be, For people watching virtually, it'll be slides, of course, and we'll be going through a more structured lecture of covering everything from genetic memory, uh, the quantum stuff that we couldn't get to, like how that piezoelectric stuff works, uh, some of the papers and the work on the cymatic stuff to the polygonal construction and examples of keystone cuts. So we're going to go over a lot of it, and then we're also going to be at America's Stonehenge and just walking around. That's May 1st, and all of that info and everything's available on notalienist.com, and then upcoming tonight i'll be live on spaced out radio with michael hall which i do monthly which cool. nothing like a ufologist that's been in it for 40 years we do that <laughs> monthly it's gonna be a good time and can you listen to that online is that a, like an online radio station type thing uh there i think they're syndicated on about uh between canada and the united states about 40 radio networks he oh, also wow. broadcasts yeah, it's on the radio. It's also on um, uh, Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. He he does stream it live, and then that is also visual. So we'll be we'll be doing that. Um, yeah, uh, that's going to be a boy. That's a little late for you guys now that I'm thinking about it. We're so that's eleven. That's uh, nine p.m. Pacific Coast American time is when that starts. Nice one. Well, so that's getting up there. Well, Jared, it's been fascinating. Like you said, we only really scratched the surface, really, but it was a bit of a whirlwind tour, wasn't it, through uh, all this prehistory, which I find fascinating. Yeah, you, 
you 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 beat me on the drink. You got your whole pint down, and I'm still. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's thirsty work. This podcasting like. Mm. It's such hard work, everyone. Yeah, it is. Please support us all. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Um, stay on the line for us for one minute while we uh, play ourselves out. And um, sure, check out Jared's site. The link will be in the show notes as usual. Eavesdroppers, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Don't touch that dial. Right then, we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Jared Murphy. Mm, very interesting. About an hour ago, wasn't it? We finished. <laughs> So, yeah. We're having technical nightmares this week. We are, aren't we? Friggin' Rollcaster shit the bed, deleted every sound bank, all eight sound banks, including the, my, the, the housekeeping and everything. Yeah. And all the clips, the news stuff that we're going to go through this week. What about the jingles? Are the everything. Jingles safe? Deleted everything. It was blank. The intro music, everything. So it's had to be cobbled together at the last minute. Mm. We could a cappella everything. Housekeeping. Mm. Toss a coin to your witcher. Oh, there he appeared here. Great play. Because <laughs> I'm literally a whore. <laughs> yeah. So works. Yeah, it still works, doesn't it? Because I'm literally a communist. Yeah, I still got that one. Beautiful. Yeah. Right, let's do some. Housekeeping. 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 Because I'm literally a. Cut a grape. <laughs> this is such a crock of shit. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. If you found this podcast valuable, please return some value. There's a myriad ways of doing this. Why are you in hysterics, Ben? It's not even that funny. I've played it a million times. No, what are no, you laughing at? Say, so, yeah. Grape. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, uh, no, I'm not laughing at anything. Just amusing myself. How do you become a producer of the Armist Inquisition? Send us some more jingles. Fill <laughs> <laughs> our roadcaster yeah. with noises. Um, another thing I was thinking is you could send us little funny clips. Like, my wife's always coming up with them. Um, and maybe, you know, you can timestamp them for us. Well, like TikTok shit. All right. Well, that stuff, or, you know, stuff we can put on the soundboard now. Yeah. iTunes reviews. Yeah, reviews, messages, send us news, news reports. Um, subscribe, like. Subscribe on what? Um, <clears throat> Odyssey, YouTube. Odyssey, YouTube. Follow us. Yeah, so the first Instagram. half, the interviews are going to go on YouTube, it seems, and then the full videos are going to have to go on Odyssey because they're too spicy for YouTube. So yeah, if you are watching, well, you're not watching on YouTube, you can't be. So you're, no. you must be watching on Odyssey. Welcome to Odyssey. Isn't it nice? Jump in. The weather's yeah. the, the, the water's lovely. <laughs> There'll be other uh, platforms that I think we'll dip our toe in uh, as well as we uh, 
as we progress on this journey. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Censorship avoidance. Mm. Yeah. We'll have to talk to the back room, won't we, about that? Yes. Yeah, the staff. Memes for Instagram, you can send us. Memes. Yeah, buy some merch from the Amish loot chest. Scroll down to the show notes and get you, you know... Because I'm literally a communist. Hoodie or your... Currants. Grape. T-shirt. Mm. Various apparel is available. Um, you know, send us an email. Get in contact with us. Email us at thearmsinquisition at gmail.com or find us on social media. Send us stories, videos... We've had quite a lot of stuff sent us this week. Unfortunately, most of it's been deleted by the roadcaster. But, um, you know, it's a one-off that. Normal service will be resumed next week, yeah? Yeah, yeah? Yeah, I would I would assume so, yeah. Um, any other ways to become a producer? Toss a fucking coin to Toss a coin to your witcher, oh, valley of plenty. Because I'm literally a communist. Because I'm literally a coin to your witcher, oh, valley of plenty. If you go to thearmistinquisition.com, you'll find a PayPal button there, and you can give us a one-off donation, or you can sign up for a monthly. Hmm. No, that would be very much appreciated. Absolutely, yeah. this shit costs money. Yeah. So uh, when you need a new roadcaster that doesn't delete them. Yeah, even without fucking hardware problems, it, you know. So. Uh, but yeah, thanks for your for your help this week. I suppose we should thank the producers. We do have a number of producers for the episode one eight zero one hundred and eighty. I should have clicked that really, shouldn't I? Oh, yeah. Maybe you did, would have been deleted anyway. delete it. <laughs> yeah. I should have clicked bully, yeah. But uh, yeah, number of producers, episode 180, we have Jesus Talks, Slicko83, Nomi Nosnodge, Online Chemistry Tutor, Hate Dave, DCI Shanks, Tambarista2020, Anonymous, and everyone who bought merch this week. Thank you. You're so amazing in your love. I don't even have that. <laughs> <laughs> And it really bothers me. <laughs> it does bother me. It bothers me that the fucking roadcast has deleted everything. I can't have children with... Literally a... Chest feeding. Communists. Chest feeding communists. We haven't had that one before, have we? I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am... Fucking... Chest feeding. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am... Chest feeding. <laughs> oh, it's all just falling to bits. The dwarf, the currants, the grape, the... Homophobe, the wind. The blind man, the fallen on the horizon, the cripple, and the mother of an old friend is here from hell. Delightful! Don't get it, never will. Chest feeding, chest feeding, chest feeding. It really bothers me. (laughs) Oh, anything could happen. Yeah, I uh, I've just uh, I'm I'm low on the jingle count is low tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah. COVID nineteen news.
it's not it's not got any samples in it. I just clicked on it. It just said COVID news, so I clicked on it. Just vibe with it. Yeah. <laughs> Vaccination in the end will be your route to liberty. Uh, magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. <laughs> Three million people have to die. <laughs> this is such a crock of shit. <laughs> oh, God. What's going on? Uh, do you know, Bojo caused some fucking consternation this week, didn't he, with his his uh, his musings on the uh, the old vaccine programme. Did we get a load of this? I've got a clip here from Sky News. The vaccine does nothing. I just want to make a, a very important point about about where we are with the with the pandemic, because clearly everybody's been able yesterday to uh, to go to the pub. Or those people be going to the uh, to the pub to to go shopping, get a haircut, uh, and and so yeah, not a fucking haircut, has he? Jesus Christ! One and that's uh, that's great, and the the numbers are, are down the, of infections and hospitalizations and and uh, and deaths. But it is very very important for everybody to understand that the reduction in these numbers in hospitalizations and in deaths and in infections has not been achieved by the vaccination program. People don't, I think, appreciate that it's the lockdown that has been overwhelmingly important in delivering this improvement in uh, in the in the. He's uh, got a little half smile there, like he can't believe he's peddling this bullshit. Thing to say, and in the figures that we're seeing, and so uh, yes, of course, the vaccination program has helped, <laughs> but the bulk of the work in reducing the disease has been done by the lockdown. So. As we unlock, the result will inevitably be that we, we will see uh, more infection. Uh, we, uh, sadly, we will see more hospitalisation and, 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 and deaths. And people have just got to understand that. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I can't see any reason for us to uh, change the roadmap. Do you hear the qualifier there? At the moment. The moment. It's like the old chestnut, they say, we don't currently have any plans to mm. X, Y, or Z. To deviate from the, the targets that we've, we've set ourselves. Mm. What on earth is all this about? It didn't even say, um, it's not the vaccine alone that has reduced... <laughs> What's the point the, of this uh, vaccine? <laughs> I thought it was magic. And how does he know? You can't, you can't know when you're doing two things at once. You can't tell which one is having an effect. That's why you do one thing and you measure the one thing to, to know its effect on anything. So he can't say for sure whether it is the lockdown or the vaccine or a combination of the two. Or seasonality. By, well, seasonality, yeah. And by only by coming out of one, either the lockdown or suddenly unvaccinate everyone, uh, can you find out whether it, which one has had an effect? And coming out of lockdown, which is the roadmap or whatever, is is going to show that. And if we come out and then cases go through the roof, which I don't, I personally don't think they will, because not only have a lot of people been vaccinated, but a lot of people have had the disease and recovered from it. Mm. I mean, so. you just you just have to look at if you go on Twitter, you can see often the graph of uh, the UK and Sweden cases graph. 
They're in fucking lockstep. There's no difference over the last six months. It's as if the lockdown didn't do anything. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where where are most of your cases and deaths gonna be? Hospitals and care homes. Right. Are hospitals locked down? No. You're no. wondering. No. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what is, what's his motivation. It's obviously political, but what's the See, point I've of it? What is the point of saying what he's saying? <clears throat> Day one, um, episode God knows what back, I said, what What are these fringe benefits of these lockdowns that aren't, aren't medical related? There might be something. We didn't know at the time, but this is this definitely you're right. There's definitely some other motivation behind this. The other thing I can think is 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 basically saying, you know, if which might happen, I suppose, when lockdown fully ends, if there is if it has had a small effect or whatever, that there'll be more cases and more deaths. So he's saying that it's gonna get a little bit worse, I guess. And Corinne's back. That's the only thing I could think. Yeah, just in case there is a rise and people just mm. say, oh, the vaccine doesn't work, I might as well yeah. not do anything. <laughs> Set fire to these cars. <laughs> That'll yeah. help. That's all I can think, yeah. But I, I can't, there might be something more sinister at play, I don't know. It's a strange one. It, well, but it this is a strange a, one. But this is the thing, isn't it? The, 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 they've come out with stuff that's contradicted their own advice and you know like we said a million times the vaccine makes you safe but doesn't make you safe uh, you know so it's all that kind of thing it's just muddies the waters doesn't it as to where you stand with everything mm. yeah that's the other thing i mean the the sort of first takeaway you get from it is that there's no confidence in the vaccine that's <laughs> what came to my mind straight away yeah if he's so. assuming he's being on you know he's telling the truth but, you know, I don't think he is. No, he's not, is he? I don't think the lockdowns have anything to do with what's happening. Yeah. I'm not sure the vaccines do either. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What was that vitamin D graph we showed? Because I think that exactly the same. happened a bit later on. No, I don't know. Well, we're in April now, aren't we? It's nearly May. It's pretty sunny. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's because the clocks went forward. Exactly. Extra hour. Fixed everyone. Anyway, shall we move on from Bojo? Um, Professor Anthony Horndon, who's Deputy Chairman of the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisation, the JCVI, um, he was concerned this week with revellers revelling. (laughs) Revellers revelling in London. Both vaccination and lockdown have been really important. And I think he's probably concerned, as, as I am. So he immediately contradicts the Prime Minister when he says both vaccination and lockdowns have been important. But, you know, we'll gloss over that. About the scenes in London that we saw, um, for instance, uh, of, of people actually enjoying the outside with the pubs and the, the crowded spaces. Well, of course... What that will do is, is, is push infection rates up. So every time that we unlock down, we push infection rates up. And the danger of pushing infection rates up is we get much more transmission in the community. And, of course, with these new variant strains, such as the South African strain, we really don't want that to become prevalent in this country because 
of course, the vaccines don't work quite as well. So, so I think he's trying to be cautious with everybody. We all want to get our lives back. We all want to enjoy ourselves again. But we must be cautious and do this slowly. Otherwise, we'll get back to square one. Great. Back to square one. Sorry? Yeah, we are doing it slowly. Isn't that the whole point of the roadmap? Mm, yeah. Do you want to go even slower? Yeah, but did you not see the revelers reveling? <laughs> I saw a video of Piccadilly Gardens with some revelers reveling. It's a little bit more northern, more relatable than London. Do you know, I think uh, maybe we have a problem, assuming the vaccine is is uh, effective, maybe it's over, overly specific and that the vaccine is so focused on this particular spike protein that slight uh, mutations in the spike protein makes the vaccine less uh, effective compared to naturally acquired immunity, and this is what they're talking about with this variant stuff. It doesn't seem to... It seems to contradict what Yido, Big Yido, was saying, that, you know, people who had SARS-1 are immune from SARS-CoV-2 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Why are we so worried about these variants? I think maybe it's something to do with vaccine-acquired immunity. Maybe. But you don't, did Mike, calling him by his first name, Dr. Mike, did he not say that he thought that this the, this vaccine would work against the variants, though? Is that not his kind of... I don't know. I don't think he talked about that. I think he probably talked about naturally acquired immunity because that's what the evidence from SARS-CoV-1 was related to because there wasn't a vaccine for Mm. SARS. It was people who'd had it naturally. Mm -hmm. They tested their blood against SARS-CoV-2 and they had T-cell responses. Mm. You know, I mean, there's so much just fucking bullshit. Like, we're doing these antibody tests. You don't generate antibodies indefinitely for a virus. You will die. It's energetically expensive. It's an energetically expensive process. That's the whole point of T cells and B cells. Like you have lifelong immunity from these parts of your immune system. It's like we're just fucking scientifically illiterate for the last 18 months. I'm not a fucking scientist and I can see this bullshit. It's weird, isn't it? It is. But the thing is, that keeps keep coming back to is that thought of the. Well, now I'm about to say it. You know, it's the path of, of least harm, isn't it? So if they say that, you know, if they can't, if the sages don't aren't willing to say, there's no way or that the um. Sorry, I should say that the, the vaccine will definitely work against the the variants. Um, if they're not willing to say that for definite, no, it's like the smallest sense. chance that it, it wouldn't for some people, then they're not going to say it, are they? Well, it's done on percentages to say it's less effective. So whereas mm. maybe the original trial was 90% effective, they might say, well, against variant A, it's mm-hmm. maybe 85%. Against variant B, exactly. maybe it's 80%. Now we're getting the double mutant, the double mutant from India in the papers. Oh you know, it's just fucking... Fear sells, unfortunately. And the scientists you know. have been hanging around politicians too long and have caught that infection. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but talking about, you, you said the, the path of least harm. There was some numbers released today. I'm going to get it 
wrong, but not an order of magnitude wrong, but something like 340,000 less cancer referrals in 2020. And cancer is a disease that if you don't get it early, Mm. it gets more expensive to treat, harder to treat, and your mortality risk goes up. Over 300,000 less cancer referrals. Mm. And what? Five-year waiting list, I think, or something. Five years was mentioned today. 4.7 million people waiting for an operation. Ah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we've ah uh, well, we've we've done it all. We've we've already gone over all the unintended consequences, and you know the mm-hmm. path of least harms has been thrown out the window, hasn't it? We don't look yeah. at this holistically. Mm-hmm. It's the scariance, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, and I suppose it's this thing, isn't it, of um, cost benefit analysis, and what's the process? You know that the fat emperor talks about you know with new medicines and stuff that just hasn't been done for yeah, the vaccine it's nice i think isn't it that determines oh, yeah, yeah. you know with a new treat they decide when mm. when a new funding uh, a new um treatment is discovered and it has mm. this particular price tag on it nice is the body i believe that comes up with mm. a decision and says well this costs fifty thousand pounds and the net result is maybe 10 life years gained that is a, a good equation and we will adopt this medicine. But if something costs a million quid and it extends someone's life for six months, we don't pay for that because that million quid could be spent better. Cost-benefit analysis, it could save more life years deployed in prevention or research or somewhere else. It's We don't have a magic money tree. <laughs> oh, we didn't anyway <laughs> until yeah, this year. It's planted one. Yeah, but when you take... when you you know, consider that the average age of COVID death is slightly above average age of life expectancy. Yeah. That's all been turned on its head. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm someone who looks at the future. Mm-hmm. I care about my kids and what their life is going to be like. I'm not really bothered about me or the generation before. I'm interested in the future. And I think we've pretty much sacrificed our children and our grandchildren for something that was maybe a folly. That's the worry that I have. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, we uh, only just stopped paying off the debt for World War One, didn't we, about five years ago? You know, you wouldn't <laughs> have known that. So it'd just be part of the thing. It's just been tacked on to the trillions... Hasn't it? Anyway. It's not just about money, though. I mean, just the... Can you imagine if you were an 18... You imagine what... Remember what you were like when you were 18? And you're yeah. told that you've got to stay inside with your mum and dad for a year. Yeah. We'll I mean, to go to choir. The um, younger generation... Older boy. The younger generation have given up a year of their, their, their life, their formative years. Yeah. To do what? To the rules. To do what? What's it achieved? You want to have fun. Yeah, but what's the lot? What's it all achieved? Well, if you, this is the thing, isn't it? This is why another reason why Bojo said lockdowns have caused the dip in cases, not the vaccine. Yeah, because if he's got that wrong, 
and admits he's got it wrong, then he's obviously going to get fucking panned for it, isn't he? Unfortunately, the evidence will will eventually, it might take five years. Yeah. You know, he's going to be tarred with this. When it first happened, as a politician, you've got to be... If, if you do nothing, like Sweden did, mm. and it goes wrong, you're dead mm. in the water. But if you mm. do something, even if it doesn't work, you can say, well, at least we tried. We did this. Mm-hmm. So that's why they acted. That's why there was the political domino across Europe to go on this insane course of action. And yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I think this is this is um, not covering his tracks, but you know, he's trying to uh, justify the insane course of action that we've taken. Yeah, I would say so. Interesting uh, report from the Independent this week. Public ready to accept vaccine passports and keep them after the pandemic is over. <laughs> a majority of Britons are prepared to be asked to show vaccine passports to board buses, go shopping and go to work as the price uh, of getting back to some kind of normality after the lockdown, new polling has suggested. And in a remarkable finding that challenges widespread assumptions about the British people's distaste for ID cards... More than half are ready for immunity certification to remain in place after the COVID pandemic has ended. Time for a referendum. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem with democracy, I'm afraid. Uh, You know, most of the time you're not going to agree with the decision that's made. Mm -hmm. And people are so easily influenced. This is the thing, though, isn't it? You know, if you dangle freedom... Yeah, it's the carrot... Yeah, all you've got to do is sign up for this vaccine passport. What did that that Liana on CNN or whatever it says? We need to get this going now. Before don't all these states are opening up. We can't have that. This <laughs> vaccine passport is the is the carrot. We need to implement it now while we have the chance. Is what she said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just technocratic lunacy, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah. So that's all very depressing then. Yeah. Turn the page over and it's all right. light, happy yeah. news. Where's the levity? <laughs> I've got a. Uh, what about the Green Sill lobbying scandal? Oh, God. Uh, oh, okay. just, can, we have a, can we have an inquiry into this? They asked the Conservative. No. No. Why? What started as a ripple caused by the collapse of a little-known finance company has led to waves in Westminster. There are now seven separate inquiries into issues linked to the Greensill scandal. Far beyond the control of Boris Johnson and his Boardman inquiry. I think the most important thing is for uh, us to get to the bottom of it uh, properly. Listen to this, is some grade-A waffle coming here. He's just a bumbling idiot. And uh, for, I, I want all uh, ministers and civil servants uh, to be making, you know, the information needs to be known uh, known to uh, Mr. Baldwin. The rules on lobbying and conflicts of interest are highly likely to be toughened up. But this is also about the culture in Westminster, a place where it's partly about who you know. Access is important, contacts are currency. And that is why questions are now being asked about senior figures, not just in past administrations, but in the current one too. 
Yeah, so a lot of the there's some uh, senior civil servants being thrown mm. under the bus as well. I don't know if you heard about this. Well, you might as well throw them, throw the plebs under the bus <coughs> rather than the uh... the plebs. Um, they've been frigging. They're in the House of Lords now. Check this out. <laughs> Bill Crothers has been much criticised this week. He was a civil servant running government procurement who for a few months worked for Greensill too. But what of the man who appointed him? That was Francis Maud, then the top Cabinet Office Minister in David Cameron's government. Simone Finn was Mr Maud's special advisor. In 2015, David Cameron gave both Maud and Finn seats in the House of Lords. They later founded Francis Maud Associates, a private consultancy firm which advises government on issues like procurement. But both are now back in government, although they retain their shareholdings in the company. Baron Maud is conducting a review into how Whitehall operates. <laughs> Baroness Finn was this year appointed Boris Johnson's deputy chief of staff. She has declared her outside interests. But some call this the revolving door. It's not a re- No shit. Yeah. Same old story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And you have this revolving door between private companies and government and regulators and companies as well. Yeah, everyone just knows each other, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, and you you pass some, some, you know, helpful legislation for us, we'll make you a non-exec director... Pay you 20 grand a year for, you know, five years. Just turn up to a Zoom meeting once a month for an hour. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then maybe you can give me a job on one of the regulators, like the MLRHA, something like that. Nice cushy number, 100 grand a year. It's They're all in bed with each other. Yeah, definitely. They're all investigating each other as well, those times. <laughs> <laughs> What's the alternative? What would, what would the ideal government system look like? I don't want to get into this now with it being so late, but one to look at. You always need one. You need one person in charge and nobody voting. So, like Russia, yeah. <laughs> like gladiators or something. Yeah. Do you think there'd be appetite for that? I don't know. I wouldn't want to fight. I mean, um, what well. kind of... Per- <laughs> this is the thing. Do you, do you genuinely think... I don't genuinely think Boris Johnson um, has the public's interest at heart when he got into the <laughs> office of Prime Minister. I just think he wanted to do it because he was ambitious. Yeah. For some reason, I, th- I kind of felt... Uh, probably going to die on a stake here. That like David Cameron die on a stake? Is yeah, that a mixed metaphor? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Stake Diane. Yeah, you got the the, the is that a very tight sword of Ockham hanging <laughs> yeah. over your head? I thought David Cameron at times came across as genuine in some things, <laughs> right? Um, John Major, would you like to buy some magic beans? And uh, <laughs> it's not interesting. And uh, maybe Margaret Thatcher, as horrible as she was, was an ideologue, wasn't she? I um, think some of them probably have some sort of principles. Yeah, maybe deeply veiled. Yeah, um, Gordon Brown. <laughs> no, no. 
Theresa May. I mean, you have to look at why people get in, why and how people get into politics. Yeah. Uh, this is a problem we have a political class. Yeah. Um, members of parliament are supposed to be representatives of their constituency. And <laughs> part of the problem is, is we have, is the, is the system, the, the party system, and mm. whipping mm. and such we have problems with. Mm. I think uh, term limits are a good idea. And you can put conditions on term, lim- term limits as well. You can deny certain roles after you've served a term. Um, the problem is, is that this, as the Romans found, sort of tends to open the door for only the rich going into politics because it's only them that can afford it. Mm. You know? And so, or you get, the, you know, the situation where when you became consul... And there was two consuls who both had sort of uh, equal power and could veto each other. That was your opportunity to make as much money as possible from backhanders and from land holdings and whatever. Because after that, you can't hold the same office twice. And you only get it for a year. They used to change every year. Mm. Consuls and ediles and praetors and all the rest of it. It was a 12-month deal. So you had to maximise your profits and your influence over that tw- over that 12 months. And, you know, uh, you could just, you know, declare yourself a dictator like Julius Caesar did. Yeah. It's one of the fast- fascinating things about Sulla is that he declared himself dictator for life. And then once he Who? did shit Sulla right. in the Republic era before Julius Caesar, declared himself dictator for life achieved what he needed to, the reforms, and then just threw it all away, just retired. Right, I've done, my job's done. And he just walked off into the crowd and retired and, like, died of liver disease six months later. (laughs) That's a rare thing. Most Mm. people want to hold on to power as long as they can. Yeah. That's a very strange thing. Not in every case, though. No. We need, we need the right people, the people who are there for the right reasons. Excellent dictators. But as like someone like the odd man would say, the system filters them fuckers out. Mm. It's only the people who, who will who will who, who are willing to climb that greasy pole and stand on everyone's head <laughs> on the exactly. way up to get there who will get there. Who the system will allow. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, Matt Hancock's like the health secretary. Don't you mean Hat Mancock? Hat Mancock, yeah. Did you hear about um, the Queen (laughs) stripping... Her husband died. Her husband's died, yeah, but um, you might not have heard... Obviously, that's been the main story about the Queen, but she's also been stripping dozens of disgraced recipients of their honours in a secretive process. What does she do to strip these? Does she unite them? An investigation by the Times found that 70 people have had their honours cancelled and annulled in the past decade for a number of different reasons. In 2020 alone, nine people had their honours revoked, including disgraced Hollywood director Harvey Weinstein and former Downing Street aide Mark Adams, who was convicted of raping two women. Hanif Lalani, the former CFO, chief financial officer of BT, 
also had his honour removed last September, 10 years after he left the company and eight years after he was convicted of inside trading. In the post-war period, however, it appears that most of the honours have been rescinded because of child sexual abuse, which accounts for 37% of all cancellations in the past two decades. Jesus. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here, no. No. Dictators Robert Mugabe and Nikolai Ceausescu <laughs> also had their honorary titles removed for Is human after, rights abuses. After the, sort of the government in the 70s um, sort of made the Queen meet him and stuff. She's met quite a lot of dictators, hasn't she? Over the years. Comes with the territory, doesn't it? Mm. Is yeah, he still alive, Mugabe, or did he die? No, he died last year, I think, or maybe mm. the year before. Yeah. Anyway, are we getting uh, are we getting ready to wrap? Oh, thank God! Yeah, yeah, it's, it's getting real low. Yeah, I uh, I think I might have found my favorite thing on the internet. Yes, finally. Are we familiar oh. with Cameo? Oh yes, the, yeah, um, yeah. Word up, I, oh man, <laughs> I was going to get you one for Christmas. Explain. Oh, oh, I know. The celebrity shorts you can buy. Shorts with celebrity well, celebrities you, on them. No. So you <laughs> you send them a message and they will read it out for you. Or you say, you know, my dad's it's my dad's birthday, loves you Chevy Chase. Do me a message. Do you know who's uh, been one of the biggest hits on UK cameo? Is he a Python? Nope. I don't know then. Um Gordon Britas. No, Nigel Farage is on cameo. Oh God! Get the fuck out of me! And uh, some people have been trolling him. <laughs> Has he been saying them still? You be the judge. Here we go. <laughs> Happy Pog Day to my favourite Valorant gamers. A reminder: show the sus simps and incels among us how to date girls and not be big cringe imposter chungus. She made beans. She do be eating them, though. Sheesh. I didn't understand any of that. It's Newspeak. (laughs) Was was he eating his breakfast when he did that? Have you heard of Among Us, the game? The tablet game? Oh, my God. Oh, kids love it. And uh, the the Among Us crew of of gamers have been trolling him. James Marson, what did you do with Big Chungus? We know you're the sus imposter. And I saw you vent in electrical. What did you do with that wish delivery the other week, James? Use code Among Us for a twenty dollar discount on oh. James Marson merch. Among Us. That's happy baseball. birthday. Well, one of them's. Sorry, I get it now. I remember the game. I thought you said humongous for some reason. One of one. Someone is the imposter. Yeah. This is a good. This is a good one. This is a birthday shout out. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. An update for the group. Crisis in Plotland. Ramona Big Chungus has launched a military coup, and only you can stop it. Sign up to NordVPN and use the code Among Us to beat the totally sus Chungus and save Plotland. Wow. <coughs> Did you know where Plotland was in crisis? No. I do now. Crisis in Plotland. 
you know what you have to do then, don't you? Save Plotland. <laughs> Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. <laughs> the lads, lads, lads. <laughs> what did you do with Big Chungus? Epic dub. <laughs> <laughs> I think you delete everything on that roadcaster so you can fill it with varietisms. Vegan sausage roll. Vegan <laughs> sausage roll. Epic dub. <laughs> oh dear, I love it. Yeah, big ups to the mandem. It's time to big up the mandems, yo. Pick <laughs> up the mandem, yeah. Don't forget about the lads. The lads. 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 Lads, lads, lads. Uh, do you want to guess how much his fee is for each cameo? Well, the Python guy was like low hundreds. Who's the Python guy? Oh, the main one. Faulty Towers guy. John Cleese is on there. Yeah, he's on one of them. There's loads of them, it. isn't there? There's one called Cameo. There's, there's another one. Zavala's on there. Zavala. Mm. Um, I'm going to say 75 quid. 37 pounds, 50. Uh, I don't know what to say, Matt. Yeah. Epic dub. 75 quid, exactly. <laughs> the price is right. Yeah. You win an what evening. What did you with do Idle with Fry. Big Chungus? What's the point? What did you do with Big Chungus, Matt? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I can't go out with um, Farage because my wife would murder me. She, what? She, she just hates him. She genuinely has a hatred of him. But he saved Plotland. Save Plotland. Plotland. <laughs> what's she? Uh, what's she got against Nigel? Just the hypocrisy. German wife and. All right. So if you want to, if you want to leave uh, a bloated multinational bureaucracy, you're not allowed to have a wife of a different um, nationality. That's in the rules. Read them and understand them. Yeah. Yikes. (laughs) What did you do with Big Chungus? (laughs) Left him in the EU, I guess, in Brussels. Yeah. Lads, lads, lads. The lads, lads, lads. <laughs> Epic dub. <laughs> oh dear. Right, should we go? Yeah. Yeah. It's not time. This. All right. I might just go on out myself to a vegan sausage roll. Vegan sausage roll. Right, I think it's uh, it's Dr. Roland on Marsh next week, isn't it? Yes, indeed. So, I'll email him. <laughs> More Egypt shit coming at you next yeah. week. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right. Egypt month. Yeah, big up to the mandem. It's time to big up the mandems, yo. <laughs> Anything to add? No, no not this week. Wakanda forever. It's dying something, something. Safe Plotland. Safe Plotland. Lads, lads, lads. <laughs> See you in a bit. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. Crisis in Plotland. What did you do with Big Chungus? The lads, 
lads, lads. Say Lopland Epic Dub. Big Garden Sausage Roll. It's time to big up the man Dems. Yo. Epic Dub.